I think it's the same with a performance or with marketing where when you're performing, you want people to feel something in response to your performance. So when you release your EP or your opera, whatever that is, what emotional response do you want from people and create content that supports that emotional response. So if you want them to feel hopeful, then you have to be giving them hopeful content along the way to not only promote your project, but build buy-in so that they will purchase your album, whatever, when it's released. So yeah, that's definitely an overarching theme is what do I want people to feel in response to my work and having that guide the project. Mm, I'm just trying to figure out how to rap about my microgreens. (laughs) It's there. (laughs) It's there. Welcome everybody to the Faking Notes Notes Podcast. Podcast. It's the Faking Notes Podcast. Yes. Our next guest is a great friend of mine. She can be found on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram at CR Soprano. Her name is Courtney Ruckman, and she is a professional soprano turned arts administrator, social media marketer, entrepreneur who has worked with PR agencies and arts organizations from across the country. She's a straight up beast, and I happened to meet her on such a random happenstance. And even so, she has been one of the most influential figures in my growth as a content creator and just a person in general. Courtney has a great story, and we we cover a lot of different topics in this episode. I mean, everything from Little Nas X, um, how to how she herself has pivoted from being a soprano into this new marketing space she's got a lot of great actionable advice of things you can do right now to help get your music get yourself out there and i mean you're gonna love hearing her story and we're so excited to to share this conversation with you our next guest courtney ruckman Speaking of content, ah. <laughs> thanks again for coming out, Cordy. It's so nice to meet you yeah, uh, and particularly to find, again, people who are interested in different approaches, new things, new technologies, new mediums in music. So why? Why are you interested in social media and <laughs> website design and content? Like what, what sparked that for you? So I started as an opera singer, like this track will sound super familiar, like going to undergrad for performance and doing audition season, trying to get into programs and things. And I always found myself more interested almost in how the, how the company was marketing the opportunities than like the opportunity itself. And so, you know, when I would be on a gig, I would be so interested in what the marketing director was doing. And I'm like, you should be more interested in the singing. And that was kind of like a signal. (laughs) So I started um, doing classes at home and reading a lot of books, talking with people like Drew and just, you know, chasing my interests and then easing away from the singing itself. But I just find it fascinating how you can spin a story and how you can get people to buy into a story that you're telling. I love it. That's Mm -hmm. such a poignant, well-marketed way to describe marketing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I told you she's the goat. I told you she's the goat. <laughs> Courtney, you recently sent me a, uh, and I'm sorry, Trevor, I'm just blowing through your line of questions. It's my turn. <laughs> so Courtney actually sent me a uh, article um, talking about Lil Nas X's uh, marketing strategy for Old Town Road and how it completely blew apart the whole 
established schema of music marketing via social media. Can you talk a little bit about it? I would love for my audience to hear more about that. Yeah. So this was from a site, I believe it's called Marketing Examples. And he has like a website and an email list. But anyway, um, well, Nas X, he started a Twitter account with the intent of promoting his music. And he realized that memes were more successful than his actual art. So he started... Yeah. So like he started creating memes with his music as accompaniment to the meme. And then people were starting to share it because that's something everyone's interested in is like humor and, you know, that connection. So he took a video of a man riding a horse and he put um, Old Town Road to that meme and it exploded. And so since the section from the meme was horses in the back, that's what he titled the song on all of his SoundClouds, all of his YouTube, so that people could easily search for it. Mm. So he got into the music business via meme culture, which I find so fascinating. It's like, a, you know, reworking the system in his favor. This is, my mind's blowing. My just, mind is a new meme. It makes so much just, sense. It's brilliant. People no are idea. telling stories in that way, which was so interesting. They weren't marketing their music via memes in that way. Um, on, it was on Twitter, right? Like that's where he was starting to yeah. post the memes. It wasn't TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. And he, he titled his songs, old town road parentheses, horses in the back so that people could easily find it. And he retitled it everywhere. So it was like super searchable on Google or any platform. I mean, it was brilliant. And so then from there, when he started doing all the remixes, those count towards like the original. So that's why he was able to stay in like the number one spot because he got other people to buy in to his music. So it's just brilliant. I mean, like who would have thought of that, but it makes so much sense. <laughs> He's got to change his name. Lil Nas SEO. Like, ah. right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I had oh. literally no idea. This is the first, my, my reaction is genuine. I've never heard of this. And yet it yeah. makes perfect sense. Like coming in from uh, like, again, coming in from a different angle. It's not, I've got a really like cool, super catchy song. That's yeah. a, a little different for the times and it's going to be fun. And, you know, a summer hit to like, I really like memes. Next thing you know, a billion listens. <laughs> and he was basically a growth hacker. Just seeing what the system is and finding his own way through it. It's brilliant. That's innovation. And so like, I think what I learned most from it was understanding one's audience. Like, I, honestly, that can be as like a, an influencer as, as, as a content creator, it's really hard to understand your audience especially if you don't start with like this idea of at least trying to figure out who you want to serve and then targeting an audience. If you don't do that, if you just try to make something for everybody, uh, you don't make the purple cow, like Seth Godin would Mm -hmm. say, like you don't, you'll never know what your audience needs, but because he was on Twitter and he understood that his audience liked humor, he figured out how to drive his story narrative with that specific target in mind. What are some things, Courtney, that you found that are helpful in targeting specific audiences? Are there certain um, like tools that you can employ, certain exercises? I think you have to first understand the culture of each platform. When you think of the Old Town Road song, had he tried that strategy possibly on Instagram, it likely wouldn't have been as successful because Mm. people don't share content in the same way on Instagram as they do Twitter. So I think when people are looking to promote themselves, promote their projects, the thing that a lot of people are missing when they're not successful is understanding which platform is the most appropriate for their content, their, their vibe and their message. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So that's just as something that it really takes trial and error, you know, putting things out there and seeing what resonates with people and then doubling down on the things that people respond to. I love how you were like, you have to keep like throwing content out there and seeing what sticks. Cause I think from the content creator's perspective, it's, you know, you spend so much time, brain power, energy, emotion, making this, this baby, like mm-hmm. it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. It's an idea. It's a manifestation of your essence when you put it out there and like a few people watch it and some people are like thumbs up emoji. <laughs> it's like, Oh, some people what are like, well, this is what you should have. No, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. Gosh, well, actually I hate this color grading. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> and like you could put your heart and soul into a project you could spend countless hours and it would flop and then you take like a silly picture of your dog and it goes viral it's like sometimes you know it just <laughs> there's just like no rhyme or reason sometimes i mean a lot of times i think there is there's an underlying reason but it can feel frustrating but if you don't put everything out there you'll never know like what will stick with people particularly with something like like tiktok uh, so my partner, Amy, she's just been fascinated with TikTok. So she, that's what her like nightly doom scrolling exercise is. <laughs> and so that's me, the same at this house. me being beside her means like, I'm like, oh, I'm not on TikTok, but I like roll over and I just stare at it for <laughs> um, yeah, secondhand TikTok. Uh, <laughs> we are obsessed but with yeah here's more uh, here's really more bad. dangerous yeah <laughs> oh sorry corny but you see these the, there's the, even the the very recent uh so this there'll probably be something else by the time this episode comes out uh but there's just that like up close video of that like young girl's face and she's just you know moving her face to a song and it goes very viral millions of views people are sending in artwork of her doing this what? dance everyone's doing and it's just like these all these little tiktok things it's so funny the smallest action yeah. there's just no way you could have predicted like oh this is gonna go viral it's not a sneezing panda it's not yeah. some like highly crafted video it's it was probably just some toss-off thing next thing you know you someone is mailing you artwork of you yeah <laughs> like it's, it's tiktok wild. is a wild place it's like my favorite platform to be honest but it i'm is- afraid i'm afraid courtney I'm afraid. Do it, Drew. I'm afraid of it. It, it, it really it looks seems, too shiny. It really seems like the most. I mean, I gotta give it credit. Like, it really seems like it's currently it's the most creative platform, just because of the mm-hmm. tools. It's like, hey, you can do, yeah. you can do literally whatever you want. Um, this is I'm just what, tired. Algorithm yeah. and the. <laughs> I'm just tired. <laughs> I mean, the way that they set up the app, I think it's superior to any of the other apps because you go into Instagram and you're like seeing like whatever content and then maybe like one gem pops out i mean the way tiktok is set up every time you scroll you're getting a gem every time you scroll you're getting the best of the creativity that the app has to offer i mean it's hard not to feel sucked in by that when all you get is amazing content over and over again so it's like well when you go back to instagram it's like "Eh, it's okay i mean it's like oh it's another booty yeah yeah i mean it's like or or, um (laughs) or motivational picture from like yeah Someone who doesn't I think motivate your timeline you. is your timeline's way better than mine, Trevor. Oh my God. Your timeline's way better. So, yeah, it's it's so interesting thinking about how we interact with these platforms so differently because at their core they have very similar goals and ideas, yet the culture of them so different. What makes you think these platforms kind of grew these separate identities? You can have images on Facebook, you can put images on Twitter. Why is Instagram one? You can have videos. Is it the UI, the UX? Like what What kind of helped foster these different cultures from seemingly very similar ideas? 
I think Facebook used to be like the fun platform and then they opened it up past college. And so then it's like, well, my mom's on here. I can't post my drinking pictures from the weekend. So like (laughs) kind of censored that platform, you know, so everyone moved over to Instagram and it's, it feels like as these platforms open up to more people, people kind of get shy with what they want to share. And so they just hop over to the next thing. And it almost feels like Facebook or Instagram, they might have too many options for how to communicate with people like a story mm. versus a feed versus a carousel and a video. And you know, when you go to TikTok, it's like, this is exactly what you're getting and that's it. So you know what to expect and you're not having to wade through things to get what you want out of the platform. That's the beauty of innovation and like trying to break up monopolistic thinking because when there's no competition, yeah. you don't have innovation in the, in the space without TikTok, Instagram would have never made reels without YouTube. No. Instagram would have never made IGTV. Or Snapchat with the stories. Or Snapchat with stories. It's it's the mm-hmm. Zuckerberg playbook. It's it's a monopolistic playbook. Like see what the innovative younger companies are doing that's grabbing attention, then make a commodified generic version of that that then doesn't really yeah. spark the same joy. Mm-hmm. Which is so fascinating yeah. because Instagram, when it was bought before it was bought by Facebook, it had the same charm that TikTok has. It, it was just easier to use. And now I think the back end from Facebook and Instagram, if you're like preparing posts, it's, it's really glitchy and it's frustrating. So you hop over to Twitter or TikTok, it's like, it's way easier to share content. So that's a big draw. That's the beauty of at least like why Twitter has like maintained kind of its uniqueness is that it hasn't really expanded features. It's, it's kept pretty isolated. Yes. There's little things here and there, you know, how can you reach and have one seventh of the world population on your platform. Like that's mind blowing. Continents of people are on Facebook. Facebook's its own continent and it needs a lot of work. It really does kind of stray from, I guess, the original goal and the intent. You're very right. I used to be on Facebook all the time and mm-hmm. it just became unfun. And then it came, it comes MAGA, MAGA, MAGA. And then <laughs> next thing yeah. you know, it's people ads. People all over Facebook. It's grown very big. There's, of course, the, monopolistic issues, but also the vision, it's just going to get diluted when you reach one seventh of the world population. Like it's, it's, it's just mind boggling. There was even a recent article specifically kind of talking about the innovation problems with Facebook mm-hmm. <laughs> and the person, the boil it down, the person uh, kind of slightly said, he's just like Facebook, very bad at innovating, but very good at buying. <laughs> because if you think about it, each of their initiatives um, while people might use it, they they all kind of flop. But every time they buy something like an Instagram, it seems to work really well. But <laughs> that aside, yeah. like the I guess the nimbleness of these small companies and the the shiny new object, the younger generation. Mm-hmm. Well, Facebook's even changed again. They just released a new um, a new design. So now they're featuring groups more than your personal notifications. So they're again trying to drive you to a different experience. It's like how many experiences do we need to have? It's yeah. just Facebook. So it's, yeah, it's very interesting. The experience of groups too, which is very interesting. When you look at the political climate and the nature of the mm-hmm. pro, uh, the algorithms where they, they love to rank highly in their algorithm uh, posts that have a lot of reactions. And unfortunately, we as humans, we are predisposed to react more often to negative stimuli. So just that natural hijacking of that disposition bothers me. And so when you have a push towards more groups, what does that mean? Does that mean we become more polarized? Does that mean we become more within our own echo chambers? Like those are questions 
we really need to be asking these social media companies because believe it or not, social media does affect what happens in the real world now. It's different. Mm -hmm. It's more powerful. But I also wonder if groups are a way around privacy settings on the app, because if you don't want people to see your content or you're feeling like, I don't want to give this much to the companies, like with sharing, you're just not going to post as much. But if they can hook you into a group that you're very invested in the topic, you'll be an active contributor. So they're getting you to stay on the platform that otherwise you might abandon. So I kind of think it's their way around people's discomfort with sharing on these platforms. Where do you think the discomfort comes from? Because I think we all have different reasons why we're uncomfortable sharing on social media. I mean, I I guess everything feels so polarized. Like you're saying with politics right now, it's like, Mm -hmm. well, if you post in favor of this candidate, someone's going to say something or in favor of that candidate, you know, you can't post anything about certain topics. It feels without people coming for you. And some people that have kids, like they're worried about privacy. So they're not going to share any content that has their kids, or maybe they're sharing everything with their kids. So I, I think like people on this side of the screen are worried about what people on the other side of the screen are seeing or thinking mm-hmm. about what they're sharing. So if you go into a group, it's almost like a hidden identity because no one knows you. You can maybe be a little more honest and you're passionate about that topic. So it feels, I think, safer for people. Mm. The interface change, like they want you to go to these mm-hmm. groups because mm-hmm. I guess they looked at the numbers and like people who interact in groups stay on the platform. And as yeah. a business, you want them hooked on the product. I read a book. Well, false. Right. I didn't read the book. Uh, I kept reading the first chapter and the preface. <laughs> um, it's called Irresistible. It was by a Google ethicist. He worked for tech companies on ethics. And so it was one of these, you know, kind of warning shots three or four years ago of like, be careful with social media because mm. they have teams of people. Their job is to keep you on their platforms. It's how they make mm ad revenue. It's how they keep going. It's a service and they want you to use the service. He had some simple suggestions that I implemented, like, you know, using a grayscale black and white on your phone because that red notification button, it's red for a reason. It draws your eye in. It's a number for a reason. There's teams of people who've thought about this to keep you going on there. It feels like a level up system. And in the preface, it specifically like mentioned people who created this your Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. And it's like Steve Jobs, kids didn't have iPads. They didn't have computers. They sat at the table without phones. Why? Because they knew like, hey, like (laughs) these are tools. We don't want you. They're not using their own stuff. Yeah. Don't get high on your own supply. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they're driving people to these groups, which is of course smart for them. And it's so troubling because it's so big. One seventh of the world population. Facebook has done a lot of good. There are a lot of isolated communities, people who can't get out, who might be shy, who can like blossom online and otherwise might not have had that opportunity in our society to find like-minded people is incredible. There's a treasure trove of wealth and love on Facebook. All that said, all the complete negative side effects of finding groups, like if you have a terrible idea, suddenly you have been connected to a thousand other people who share and foster your awful idea. Yeah, there's a community for everyone. You don't feel alone. Yep. Is there something on these platforms to your mind that could be changed or altered to keep the good, but try to reduce the bad? And uh, Zuckerberg, if you're listening, now's your chance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Please tune in to our thoughts. <laughs> Gosh, that's such a tough question because really, whoever you are, whatever your interests or feelings are, 
you can find someone who is like-minded on a platform. Like you just can. So I, I'm honestly extremely inspired by TikTok because I feel like it fosters a culture of positivity and it doesn't have room for negative comments. If people leave negative comments, people will respond and say, go somewhere else. We don't need this. That's here. how Instagram used to be. Mm-hmm. And it's not anymore. The comments no. get so hateful and it just, it, people even just turn off their comments, which it's sad to me that people are so focused on leaving negative feedback that you don't even want them to engage with you anymore because they're so nasty behind a computer. So I don't know how you like fundamentally get people to be kinder. It just, I think social media can bring out the worst in people. You have limited comments like Drake or Amanda Seals. Like, <laughs> like they, they, they're only certain people that can comment on their videos. That's so fat. That's such a fascinating feature. Mm which I don't know. Is it, is it a problem of scale? You think, is it a problem? Like you can't really police once something's at scale, you can't really police everyone. And then like, there's always a percentage of people that are going to be angry or that are going to be upset and they're going to take it out on you. Like what could a, what could a platform possibly do or what is TikTok doing that Facebook slash Instagram isn't? I think with TikTok, how Trevor was saying, it's like a younger group of people. There are people that are not tolerant of bullying or racism and all of these isms that are prevalent on platforms like Facebook. And so I think TikTok has fostered a culture that is not okay with that type of behavior, which unfortunately the other platforms haven't said no to. Mm -hmm. Because then it gets to free speech and then it gets to like, oh, Mm -hmm. but it's kind of crazy. I perceive like social media is kind of, and this is not an original thought, but I heard somebody on a podcast somewhere, probably Joe Rogan at some (laughs) point. Uh, (laughs) No, that these social media platforms are becoming more like utilities, right? It's, it's, It's becoming more like a town square, an actual place of real estate where you can, you know, have a place of real estate that you uh, utilize to generate money. Like it's, it's really kind of crazy when you think about it. It's like a virtual plot of land. That's what these social media platforms are when they have the power to deplatform you. It's kind of a microcosm of like the government taking your land away and saying, you can't, you know, it, it feels like that. So what do you think? Where do you think they stand? Are they a public utility? Are they a a private company? Like they're so big now. It's crazy. I think if they tried to make it private, they would lose what makes them successful because Mm -hmm. it is successful because people can say what they want, whether we like it or not. I, you know, that's what makes them successful. Like if you've ever been in a Facebook group or something where they, they shut off comments once a discussion starts mm-hmm. going, you're like, well, I'm just not going to comment again. So like, I think if they try to police it too much, then they will lose what people are interested in with that platform. It's such a, a difficult subject. And obviously they haven't <laughs> figured it out. And, you know, that's like the, the third richest person in the world, you know, tweeting at right. the fourth richest person in the world. Like, you know, <laughs> While, you know, ordering stuff online from the the most rich person in the world. Um, Yeah. So, like, they haven't solved it with teams and teams and literally unlimited resources. Who knows? Because it's that's just the the difficulty of this is I like what Drew said, alluded to, is that it's a town square. And just like every town square and every town, there's there's a lot of good people. There's a lot of bad people. There's (laughs) (laughs) There's those people. Yeah. 
snake oil salesman. Yeah. You got people peeing in a jar and trying to sell it to you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yep. The problem with the peeing in the jar is if you can do it at scale, like that's, it's I not scalable. There's only so much. If you to drink, start drinking more coffee. You, you got to outsource it to China, <laughs> yeah, bro. Yeah, just, you got to you got to import your pee. <laughs> There's a Facebook group for that, um, but no, it's true. It's 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 really hard, and like these are tough topics because I've seen such good and such bad, even just directly in my own life, for just people I know, following people I've like grown up with, and their mm-hmm. parents and their family. I can now see everything. Maybe even shifting focus uh, now that we've solved social media, faking those podcasts. Faking those podcasts. <laughs> Circling back towards the 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 specific of like the group nature of it and fostering your own community. One thing mm-hmm. I've at least noticed just back podcasters like a Joe Rogan, for example, is like a lot of the people who are creating the content aren't actually him. It's fans. Most of the videos you sure. see on YouTube, GRE experience or one of the biggest channels. Powerful G- JRE. Yeah. And like I had yeah. no idea that they're not involved in that at all. I didn't know that either. Yeah, that's fans. And they just understand. They're like, well, what about copyright? They just understand the mutual benefit. Mm-hmm. If you told me, hey, someone's going to like, you know, crop up and segment your content for you, I'd be like, oh my God. You know? Be like, yeah. thank you. <laughs> thank you. I yes, send please. You, send just you a like, t-shirt. Please, yeah. please. please. On, I'm, but... dying. I'm dying. I'm but, dying. Okay. You can do <laughs> it, Drew. I believe in you. The idea that you can get people who would never have previously been a part of your life, suddenly are interested enough to like put effort into fostering your community. This is kind of wild. What steps or thoughts or like ideas have you put in as you grow your community? Like what are you looking for from your community? I think when I, when I work in the arts administration side, growing the community for our um, choral organization, I'm looking for getting people engaged, like not just a passive like, but enough to share our content, to comment on it, to give their opinions. Mm -hmm. So I think the first step in building community is um, creating content that is either educational, that gives them value or gives them an emotional response to what you're sharing. And so that's the first step to getting people to buy into what you're doing and engage with it. Got to land the value. You got to always go back to value. That's like a very mm-hmm. uh, Gary Vaynerchuk-esque. But I, I think it's true. It's like when you... Okay, so one thing, this is a tip for faking fam out there. Okay, if you're trying to build an online business, if you're trying to like figure out how to sell a course or you're trying to do... First, like buy one from somebody that you really like. You, you watch people online, right? They're you either watch a fitness guru or some sort of minimalist mm-hmm. productivity coach. They, there are people online in other sectors outside of music that have figured this out and they have made YouTube videos that are helpful. They teach you things, they help you feel things. And then, like in their description, they have like a free course, right? For your email. And then once you do that free course and you actually learn more valuable things, then they drop another course that's like 50 bucks. It's like a hundred bucks. Get into the ecosystem. That's one of the things that I'm learning is being in this ecosystem and understanding how to create content that gives value and then create a story arc that's on brand that then outlines something greater. I'm discovering this and you taught me, Courtney. I love it. I love it. Can you speak on that a little bit? 
<laughs> I mean, I guess if you want to look at like drawing in an audience and building community, you think of like having a circle and everyone is outside of the circle and your most invested uh, evangelists are going to be in the center. So you need to bring, you need to have like tiers of content that will bring people in to the circle mm-hmm. from the outside. So mm-hmm. what is going to bring them in? Like what can you create that will offer value to a larger group of people and then slowly siphon them down into a more niche and invested community for your brand. Mm-hmm. So you could have these music lovers on the outside that love classical music, but then you ultimately want to get like the viola players into the center of the circle for your course. So like thinking about creating variable content that can bring in new people, but also move the existing customers through that journey to be the evangelist for your brand. I love that. It's like, Ooh. it's, I guess, I don't know what the term would be, but it's just a funnel. It's just bringing them in, yeah, and like, <laughs> expanding the fun- buyer's journey. Mm-hmm. Drew and I have talked about this. I don't know the name for it, but there's just some arrow system and like, you know, a user is on the arrow either, you know, it's like the first, they haven't heard of you unacquired yeah. and then it branches off. Are they a high value? Yep. Like, did they, did they churn? Did they do something else? And then it moves on and like yeah. you try to keep. And so frames, super useful mm-hmm. tools, just thinking funnel, add value. These little mantras yeah. super helpful. And like, this arrow system or whatever anyone uses, but just reminding me to whenever I do an action to just like, what is my purpose and like, which, yeah, because also that allows you to measure it. Yeah. It shows you which metrics to value. And I, when you're putting out your content too, knowing who you're writing to is extremely helpful, but just, just thinking, what action do I want this person to take from this piece of content? Like what action is most valuable to me for this content and building content that gets that reaction that you're hoping for? Because mm-hmm. something that you want people to share would likely look different than something that you want them to comment on and the caption would be different. So understanding the, the purpose of all of your content, not just who it's supposed to reach. And what I'm learning is that it's okay to have a diverse audience and have many mm-hmm. different, because like I've seen, uh, colleagues of mine do it unsuccessfully in the past. And I didn't think it was possible to have uh, mm-hmm. to pivot one's brand. And I think I, I honestly, when I started out, I was just doing stuff on my phone. You know, I didn't have any fancy equipment. I didn't have any of that. So when I then wanted to be more of a lifestyle brand, cause that's what I thought that, you know, that's how you actually make money with it. Cause I was taking pictures of my instrument and my, clothes hamper like <laughs> i didn't have any i didn't have any plan courtney i don't know how you like i don't know how you put up with me after all those years i didn't ever have any ulterior motives i was just like i'm bored uh maybe i can anthropomorphize my instrument i mean yeah but i, I want to like i want to be more targeted in my pr- approach uh of how, because like, I, I want to have many different facets to my career. So one thing that I've always, can we do a quick thought experiment? Cause this is sure. really, uh, I want to kind of go through, uh, in real time, like a brainstorming session you would have with a potential client, uh, mm-hmm. who may be like a musician. So let's just call them like Trevor or something. Let's just call them Trevor. <laughs> yeah, um, just a random name. Okay. You know, 21, 29 white, kind of sad, uh, <laughs> but has a really cute dog who coincidentally gets his podcast co-host lots of likes on dating apps. Right. Shout out. Love bro. it. Shout yeah, out. Love it. Bro. I have dogs up here too. So Ooh. we're in good company, bro. 
they always think it's mine, even though I'm like, this is not my dog. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, line digression over. Okay. So it's a musician, right? And they, let's say they had an EP. They just made an EP. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, and the subject matter was on, it was like social commentary, right? Let's just say it's a social commentary on police brutality. Let's just do that. Okay. So if you wanted to create a content arc to kind of like present the release of this album, what would be some steps that you, what would be the first steps to getting like the whole story arc narrative talk to the client about? So the first thing that I would do is categorize the stages of the project. So the starting stages of the project, how did this piece come into your brain? How did you start writing it? How did you decide to organize it into an EP versus an opera versus musical? Like how, how did you get to the idea for the product? Then I would have a category for creating that product. Then I would have a category for uh, releasing or performing like a debut of that product. And then you have the arc on the other side. So within each of those categories of the phases of creating the project, you have a lot of micro categories that you can put in there too. So Mm -hmm. with each phase, you're writing the text with Mm -hmm. each phase, you're creating orchestration. So Mm -hmm. you every week would have posts that line up with the phase of the project along with those content categories so that you can be telling a full story at the same time while building an arc up to the release. So it's kind of like, it's like an interactive, uh, or it's kind of like an Italian restaurant where you get to see where the food is made, like behind the, mm-hmm. the screen. And you're like, oh, wait, so that's going to be in my stomach soon? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because if you huh. think like, I could make one post and I could say, I started this project two years ago and now it's released. I'm so proud. That could be the only post that you make. You could also draw that out into a month's long content calendar with videos and photos to support that giving people little bits of information at a time so that every day for those months, you're promoting your project, but you're giving Mm. people a different take on that project. You're saying it in a different way. And so they're not, they're not tiring out of hearing about Trevor's new EP. So you're (laughs) constantly marketing to them. I just keep telling them it's fire. I just, I just keep posting (laughs) images of fire and I'm like every day. That's all. Hashtag fire. Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's all it takes really. It is. I gave it a listen. It's, it's, you thought you thought this man had bars. You haven't even heard. It's it. actually just me saying fire, like no music. I just say it into this, <laughs> just like how you heard. It's just I'm gonna replay this conversation. But uh, I I love this framing, putting it into a story, which is something mm-hmm. we were always coming back to in almost every discussion because it's such an important part of the human experience. We love stories, and specific to story. So checking out your website which is beautiful. I want to talk specifically about like the colors of the website and the design and other things, but like your about isn't about it's story. And I'm going Mm -hmm. to steal that. So thank you. Um, But uh, it's true. You (laughs) present it as a story and like, that's more interesting than another about, you know, we're all creatives, but when it comes to marketing, suddenly the brain turns off, but yet you're just like re-engaging that it's, you spent so many years being creative, Mm -hmm. thinking about music, learning the craft, almost all of that can apply, you know, don't, don't turn the brain off when it comes to marketing. And you seem to have like fully embodied that. 
I think it's the same with a performance or with marketing where when you're performing, you want people to feel something in response to your performance. So when you release your EP or your opera, whatever that is, what emotional response do you want from people and create content that supports that emotional response. So if you want them to feel hopeful, then you have to be giving them hopeful content along the way to not only promote your project, but build buy-in so that they will purchase your album, whatever, when it's released. So yeah, that's definitely an overarching theme is what do I want people to feel in response to my work and having that guide the project. Mm, I'm just trying to figure out how to rap about my microgreens. <laughs> it's there. <laughs> it's there. It's like, it's how do I, true. what rhymes with radish? Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little saddish, you know? Yeah. These bars maddish. I don't know. I'll share it. You, you make it. I'll share it. Yeah. You know, it, that also draws to mind after t- talking to so many people on this podcast, we're just like all backgrounds, all walks of life, all types of arts mm-hmm. and projects. Um, mm-hmm. What sticks in my mind is always the, the other, the interesting, the quirk about them. Realizing that myself is like, wait, I need to be doing that in my bio. Like mm-hmm. one of the recent guests, Dear Evergreen. It's like grew up on a Christmas tree farm. That's cool. <laughs> of our website, Taylor Rossi likes pie and yoga. Like, like it's not like the oh they went to music school <laughs> She's here. The president of like the positivity club. Yeah, president like, of the positivity whoa. club. Like how like, can what? How can you like forget something like that? And yet, like music, you know, oh degree from somewhere. Like whoosh, throw that out the window. Like what makes yeah. us interesting is a key part of the story. What's next in your story? Oh my goodness. Well, I'm retired from singing. So that phase is unfortunately, or maybe fortunately behind me. Um, I'm extremely interested in starting as an independent um, marketer, publicist, um, and not having a boss and seeing where that takes me and what kind of projects I can work on and, and who I can work with. So I think that would be next for me in the next few years. And and so like now you're part of the faking fam. So when you pull that trigger... Yes. We want to, we want to be able to like have people connect. And like, honestly, this has been such, I mean, we've, we haven't really even been speaking that long, but it's already been such a value dense conversation. And this is what it's like to be around you. I just love <laughs> how your brain works and it just, it excites me to no end. I love what you said, just circling back really quickly to the whole marketing strategy and how, you know, documentation it goes back to the basics right goes back to the Mm -hmm. basics of uh sharing over creating right sharing the honest sharing like the 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 imperfect uh because it's more relatable correct what are some things what are some characteristics of content that is relatable I think if we're talking about like classical musicians, practice videos would be a great example. And there could be the person who posts perfect practice videos, which arguably are not practice videos that have no mistakes. Or there's the person that's like, I've practiced this same measure for an hour and I still can't get it. And I'm so frustrated. Has anyone ever had this experience? So you can obviously see which one people are going to comment on, respond Mm -hmm. to and engage with more. So I like, I love seeing the grit behind being a successful musician because it's so easy to post like the gown photo on the concert stage and be like, this is my life. But actually that's like a fraction of what the musicians actually do. I think keeping it honest, Mm -hmm. I I will admit I have not been keeping it honest because even if I do 
put something perfectly, somebody's like, ugh. I hate Bach on viola. It's like, what? (laughs) It's not even supposed to be on viola. I'm like, okay. It's not like I spent 48 hours. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Limited comments. Only my mom. And my and my podcast can comment on this video. Yeah. (laughs) It is true. Getting in towards like what makes things interesting, I think. We're also at a weird crossroads. And like now we know, like the more honest you are, kind of the, the better, mm. the more interesting. But now that we've done that for a while, it's kind of like honesty and realness has become commodified. Yeah. Some people are like a little too honest. <laughs> yeah, I think the pandemic kind of sped that up because, you know, the divas Talk can't do their gown photos on stage anymore. They have to show like, oh, I'm doing a podcast today and I'm wearing a button down. Like yeah. <laughs> they have to be real people. So it kind of sped up that change. Uh, that's, that's what you think, Courtney. <laughs> I had a breakout on my forehead and I didn't make content for like two weeks yeah. and you can still see the remnants. <laughs> I'm so self-conscious. Drew, do you remember like the second or third time we met and I was like, let's get a picture together. And you were like, no, not today. It's not my best <laughs> oh, day. Not, not today. <laughs> you were like, are you, you can meet, but no pictures. Yeah. Oh my God. Are you serious? Oh my God. So I funny. don't remember this. That is so crazy. I was in my feelings. I was like, all right, that's fine. <sighs> I'm sorry, Courtney. I need to get better no, about that. <sighs> I, tr- I try to be, I try to be authentic, but you know, if I'm not feeling good, I think that's the Southern boy in me. That was quick. the honesty. You were like, no pictures, please. And I appreciated <sighs> that. My mom and grandma, you so I come from like what we call old Atlanta. So I'm preface this, like my grandfather was civil rights speaker, college professor. Real, So we were, we really valued having a put together appearance. Say, say that, say what you will about that. But my grandmama to this day, if I, if she sees me and I try to leave the house and my shirt is not ironed, she will say, baby, before you leave, give me your shirt. Let me iron it. And also take off your pants. Let me iron them too. I'm like Mimi. Yeah, I gotta go, <laughs> Mimi. So, if, so I think that being bred in that environment kind of engendered this this sense of needing to like be put together when you're going out in public. And so I think that that manifested in that interaction. And I want to apologize because I didn't think about how it would have made sure. you feel. I thought it was fine. It was really okay. Fine. Okay, I just wanted to. I'm not at all sad. Put that I just think it's hilarious. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor, I'm sorry for interrupting. The official Andy, record. To, no, yeah. no, thank you for your um honesty, Drew. Ooh. <laughs> but uh, specific to honesty, like I, yeah, I'm wondering where things will go. Like now that everyone, like brands, are self aware, suddenly every brand has sassy, funny Twitter. Wendy's mm-hmm. is, you know, lighting people on fire. They're fire. Uh, it's fire really emoji. funny. And our Arby's, and then there's all these other moon, <laughs> the Moon Pie Twitter, like. But anyways, like we're we're coming to this, and so it's becoming. It's like we have to get even realer, and with some of that realness is actually it's not sadness, it's happiness, it's open, it's openness. Yeah. Um simple thoughts. I mean, 10 years ago, there was an extreme stigma about mental health. And now you can't scroll through Facebook once without someone like asking about therapy or like talking about it, particularly now, because almost everyone needs it now. 
uh, and he needs help. And but like it, like there's a real beneficial like opening to that. Mm-hmm. Every everyone's talking about it. Everyone's going out there. That's I think a real like net good because destigmatizing so many different things. Uh, I think even just like the acceleration uh, and like progressive like marriage laws, like so many different things, even just toppling countries during the Arab Spring mm-hmm. uh, has come about because the the gasoline of social media of like, wait, other people are like this. We can organize. We can talk about it. We can joke about yeah. it. It can be casual. With this honesty in mind, going back towards the moving into a new chapter of your life, it, I light up and with joy when I hear about uh, musicians who have found their other interest in pursuing it, whether it is a hobby, whether it's half and half, whether it's all in. I think we need more mm-hmm. artists in pretty much every other sector. So I'm glad we have a music representative in like digital content and publishing and marketing. So it's good to hear that. I'm sure it was a ridiculously tough choice. Did it? Mm-hmm. But was it? Did it feel that way? Does this feel like a natural evolution, or did you put the foot down? Like I'm going into this new venture fully. Like what? What was your thought process around? This? It was not an easy decision, and a part to be frank, part of the decision was geographically we weren't living in places that were conducive to studying music. Once you go higher in the skill level, the pool of teachers and coaches starts shrinking. And if you're not living in places that are accessible to them, it's very difficult to continue studying. So I felt it was not only hard to access the resources that I need to be successful, Mm -hmm. but that there are just frankly too many Sopranos. There's not enough opportunities. And so you're paying a lot of money to stay at the top of your game for maybe like two gigs a year. That's not supporting a life. That's a hobby. That's an extremely expensive hobby that you're investing a lot of heart and soul into. So I felt with, you know, living far away, that was a a hurdle, but I just, I felt like I was seeing my career start winding down because I was aging out of young artist opportunities and I didn't have an agent to help guide me through the next phase of my career. And I wasn't getting auditions. It's so competitive, um, being an unmanaged soprano. So I also felt when I was in productions, I enjoyed the workup more than the performance. And I didn't really love performing. Like it was something that was a part of music, but it wasn't my favorite part. And it didn't feel like a natural fit to me. So I started looking for other things and marketing kind of felt like a natural fit because I could go onto the other side of the table with the opera companies that I worked for as a singer. But it was a really tough decision because I felt like I was quitting or giving up and, and not like giving it the full the full all. And I think in classical music, people say, well, if you love it, you would continue. Well, unfortunately, that doesn't pay my rent. It doesn't pay for my groceries. <laughs> I, I can love this thing, but it's not supporting me and it's it's making me unhappy. So being on this side of the table now, I feel like I can appreciate the art more and I can listen to performances or recordings with a kinder heart and not be so critical and just enjoy the music. And that's what I think I was missing as a singer that I didn't realize that I've gained by going on to the other side. Just by the sounds of it, I think you can love music more <laughs> by yeah. by just like going and doing something else. Yeah. And I think of uh, part of this honesty we've seen in this new digital sphere, I've actually seen way more colleagues openly talk about uh, the excitement and the fears and the, sh- the whole experience mm-hmm. of career switching when before coming out of these traditional schools, yeah. they they had no mention that you could do other things. It wasn't None. talked about. 
It was the humongous elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. Wait, you don't actually have to do any of this stuff to still yeah. be a really good musician, to be a really good artist, citizen, person. Yeah. You don't actually need to do this. Like You can take these skills and apply them somewhere else. And my point is, in fact, that might be better. <laughs> like yeah. someone, it, it, you know, for the web design business, people, so many people going into like law or whatever. I want more lawyers who know what we do, who go in there and like can support yeah. artists, go into politics and like, and, you know, and they might be able to make a bigger contribution to the future arts and the current arts community on that side of the fence then they might have ever, you it's know, true. been struggling, starving away in music. There's no have to. And so I thank you for going out and, you know, yeah. I'm sure you're going to be part, you know, you're part of this community forever and a key part because so many musicians don't want to do any type of digital well, you know, space. Yeah. I would argue that my knowledge as a musician is now exponentially more valuable than it was as a musician being an administrator, because if you're an administrator and you have no experience in the classical arts, how can you expect to market them? If you don't know that Mimi has cold hands of OM, how can you make a meme about it for your social media page? It's, uh, it's, 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 you know, but it's true. You're, yeah, you're trying to make true. content that will connect with that audience that knows this art. How can you do that if you know it less than your audience does? So I think what people don't realize when they're coming from being a musician, going into administration, maybe artistic planning, executive director track, things like that, they have such valuable knowledge. It's just being applied in the wrong direction. And if they just Mm -hmm. turned around and went in another way, they could be making a salary that will support them in a fulfilling job with wonderful colleagues and still being a part of the art. So you're not giving up music. You're just applying it in a new direction, in a fulfilling direction. And that's what I did not see when I was trying to switch. I think we're getting more of these examples. I mean, we've told a couple of stories of just of our colleagues. And before, again, it was Mm -hmm. like looked on even just a few years ago. It's like this weird thing. Like, wait, we can do other things that also pay us and are creative. One of my closest friends, a true genius. I sit down for a coffee. He's in the middle of his doctorate at Juilliard. Um, I'm like, hey, how's it going? And he's just like, oh, I haven't told anyone yet, but I'm I'm quitting. I'm moving to San Francisco and I'm going to do computer programming. You know, spit the coffee out oh. and I'm like, awesome. I mean, I'm like, encourage him like, yes. And <laughs> the reason why it sold me and because it, it wasn't even a money thing. And even if it was, go for it. <laughs> but um, he said, I haven't felt this relieved in like 20 years. Like his whole life, mm-hmm. there's the weight of music on the shoulders of what's going into that. And so I'm sitting there like all stressed, like how am I going to survive? And I'm seeing a person who has been like, who's reached enlightenment. He has hit nirvana in this <laughs> coffee shop because he, he he like set in he's like i'm gonna go all in on on computer programming and sure enough he's thriving he's doing well very well <laughs> but for him mm-hmm. it wasn't like music hard or like i need to do something else or something his late night activity after the schoolwork was done was computer programming was going on github learning new things making little websites. That Mm -hmm. was his fun thing. That's a huge tell because in gigs, I was not looking up opera recordings. I was not studying. I was reading marketing blogs and designing my website. So I was doing all marketing things and I was not pursuing opera off the clock. And that's a huge tell. Like, how do you spend your free time? 
uh, editing vlogs and time lapses. <laughs> reading, reading articles about things that I don't need uh, to read articles about. Learning how to speed ramp my smooth yeah. <laughs> slow motion. And yeah, like it's, it's, I, I get it. I totally get it. And it's so funny how you recognize how you were spending your off hours. Right. I think that's mm-hmm. a real indication of like your mental state, honestly. Because like when in my off hours, if I'm depressed, I'm watching World War II documentaries. Yeah, <laughs> I love World War II. Drew, you can have a career in in World Wars. You can just start Bro. World Wars. Like maybe that's the <laughs> oh, <laughs> be a narrator. Who do you think I am, Trump? God, <laughs> I'm. I have big hands. Okay, <laughs> go for it. I think like another tell is just like what people ask you about, like, can you explain this to me or can you help me with this or what's your opinion? And that can often be an insight too into another like place that you could be successful that you maybe you know, you're investing the time there, but you haven't really thought of it in that way. And that was, that was another tell for me. It was people asking, how do I do this on social media? How can I like do this on my website? And so they recognized the the talent or the grit or the interest and they're reflecting that back to you when you haven't really noticed it because you're like blinders on with singing or music so you know having that feedback from people can be a valuable way to to guide into a new path Hmm. i love how you really pursued you you kind of knew because like it's so funny like we've known each other for was i still at juilliard when we met was it 2015? I don't think so. 2016? 16 or 17, I 16 think. 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. Probably, it was probably 16 because I, I, I've i known you for a little while and it was funny, like I, I was able to connect you with Andrew Owsley, Unison mm-hmm. Media. Uh, we went to the Christmas party together. Um, but I remember your story arc particularly of like having this inner dialogue of like, do I want to do i remember we talked at length about it and mm-hmm. what i what i loved was like how you were still spending time thinking about how to tell your story you were f- learning photography you were learning how to edit mm-hmm. like we were both respectively kind of in our research hidey holes <laughs> so it's true it's true i didn't know how to articulate it at the time but i knew you'd be okay and I didn't know how to like articulate that to you in a way that made sense or that could, that you could feel it. And I don't think that's anybody's capable of doing that. It starts from within. Yeah. Right. But it's hard I to lo- tell someone when they're going yeah. through that, like, Oh, you should look in another direction. Cause they have to find it on their own. So I wanted to just say, stop. <laughs> <laughs> you are so brilliant in, in, other ways beyond like it's not that you should stop your opera and singing as a soprano and this is one of the biggest things that i've tried to prove and i I think i've given myself an undue amount of pressure in trying to be successful because like i want to preach this idea that you can have your cake and eat it too the internet is such a place of abundance where you can be a professional performer and a storyteller and a marketer and have all of you can have everything but it's it's you have to orchestrate it in a (laughs) pun intended you have to orchestrate it in a particular way to where it serves you 
and mm-hmm. other people at the same time. And th- I think that's the part where people kind of get stuck because then it's the inner game of tennis. It's like this inner yeah. uh, resistance, Stephen Pressfield, where you don't want to put your creative content out there. So in your transition into mm-hmm. arts administration, what was one of the biggest challenges for you uh, in approaching this new s- sphere? Was it getting people to to hire you at first? Like, what were some things that you struggled with? So for me, the biggest uh, pain point was starting the job I'm in now. I'm a marketing coordinator. I'm the only marketer on staff. And you don't know what you don't know until you find out you should know. <laughs> so <laughs> I showed up and they're like, do you know Adobe InDesign? Because you're going to be the in-house designer for all of our print and digital materials. I'm like, what? <laughs> so there's a lot that can, you're reading the blogs and they're like, be good at this with blogging, do this with hashtags, you know, all of the technical side of being a, like a social media marketer. And that's such a specific thing because when you go into marketing for an organization, you're now doing ad buying and you're doing the SEO and the website. And there's so many things. Um, so that can be a big hurdle, just the things that you don't know you need to know, but also the tech that you should be able to work with like uh, illustrator or InDesign, Photoshop, these things that as a marketer are very important tools. And if you're on a small team, that's all you. And you won't unfortunately have a lot of support with that. I remember hitting that wall. Like when I down, <laughs> when I started going into Adobe, into the creative cloud it's transitioning hard. from Ugh. it, that's why I had to do daily vlogs because there was no way I was going to learn it. There was no way I was going to be able to transition mm-hmm while also practicing, while also trying to pay my bills, while also, you know, trying to maintain like personal relationships, which I failed at. I failed at that. Yeah. (laughs) You can't have friends if you have to spend six hours editing. Like what are you... I think of like how complicated all the music software is, the alias logic, whatever, and you become a power user and then you open up this new program and 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 like I get frustrated that I can't do some simple thing and I have to remind myself, hold on, other people have spent 10 years in Premiere Pro. Yeah. They've spent 10 years in InDesign. Like they are masters of Photoshop. And like you can't expect to, to jump right in. You're going to have to use this every day. And like what I like though is that you, you did take the plunge. Like you're in, it, you're a marketing coordinator. You're, you're doing mm-hmm. it. And of course, um, I'm sure <laughs> a lot of people from the outside probably don't understand just like how intensive that job is just how much goes into it because they just assume like oh i post on instagram it must be easy yeah it can't be that hard and then next thing you know it's you know it's 11 p.m you're like oh my god i gotta write the copy for the next month and then uh, i gotta like oh this image is slightly off and blurry you know but the data says (laughs) that i need to place the logo on the bottom right corner instead of the left corner and abc testing and blah 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 like (laughs) what are some other things um to kind of just like maybe just illuminate us who some of the things that you handle that most people wouldn't mm-hmm. think about, but that would be very useful and implementable to the average musician. So I guess a big part of my job I spend on InDesign, probably half of my workday. Um, I'm designing lower thirds for live broadcasts, which was a new thing that I just had to learn how to do. So I feel like the hits keep coming, like the new tasks keep coming and oh you just don't goodness. know what they will be. But, uh, 
Yeah, I, um, I design um, social media posts and I design digital ads and create graphics packages for our development campaigns. Um, so I collaborate with them. They come to me and they tell me, you know, we're launching this campaign. We need these emails. We need these social media posts. So then I go and design them. Um, a lot of the social media work isn't just posting, but it's going through engaging with every single comment, um, retweeting or sharing appropriate content to our project. So it's a lot of trying to build relationships and not just putting things out there, but making sure that you're engaging with the people so that they come back when you need them to, because right now we have, we have no performances to market. Mm -hmm. We have nothing. Mm -hmm. So that's been a huge challenge. Something I guess people wouldn't think of is creating a marketing plan with nothing to market. Creating a market wow. plan with nothing to market. Yeah. This is the, this is like the ideal TikToker, Instagrammer, early YouTuber type environment where you mm-hmm. are so bored and you have a camera, the pain of boredom makes you try to make a video like Marcel, the shell with shoes on yeah, an inanimate <laughs> yeah. object. Great storytelling mundane dude. I, I like once killed a family member like impaling him on a brush you want to know how i did it on a brush it's like it's like what what is going on like how are you so creative and i think this may have come up uh on the on this pod dude i'm a pod soup i'm a pod gumbo my brain is a pod gumbo i don't know where ideas flow it hey where they gumbo's leave. delicious Ooh, straight up i think that you know, when you are able to find the power in restriction when it comes to making content, that's a good place to start. What are your limitations? Knowing the box, right? Because once you know the box, then you can see where the boundaries are and then you step outside of it. So one thing I've, I've recently tried to do is just like document something on my cell phone, just tell a story only taking clips on my cell phone and that's been really helpful. So are there any other like brainstorming, like other ideas of restrictions within the marketing sphere that you can, that bite-sized small tasks that are achievable by people who maybe are on the fence or have never created content. What are some, Mm -hmm. if especially in this case of like uh, COVID and quarantine, what are some simple story arcs or narratives, for example, that you, if you were picking up a random kid who just graduated college, what, what would you tell them? Like tell them for how that they what, can use what social stories? COVID? Yeah. Like what stories, what, or, or let's just, I'm not even saying to advise them. Let's just brainstorm Trevor, please join in. Like <laughs> if you it's are fire. a graduating student and then post the it's thing. fire. <laughs> What I'm saying is like, just for instance, like I'm going to start and then I want us all to brainstorm. But like, if I was the, the say, I just got my undergraduate degree as a cello major, right? Uh, what kind of story would I tell if I'm living at home, I am stuck inside and all I really do is listen to punk rock, right? And maybe I wake up and I do push-ups. Uh, every morning to to be healthy to to get my blood going. Like during your day, what are some things that you can you can document and then create into a story narrative? I think for that, I would create a project 
and not necessarily document my day-to-day experience, but say, I'm going to play through this piece of music, which is a feat of strength for a cellist, but I'm going to do it and I'm going to document my learning process. So then from there, you could develop your content categories. Well, I'm going to do background on the composer. I'm going to do background on historical performances by amazing players of this movement. And so you can break it down and be project focused and keep the focus on the music. And then, you know, to your stories, which are only 24 hours, be like, I listened to rock and roll for like four hours and it was awesome. Or like, I slept till 12, but I still practice. So um, (laughs) keep yourself in it, but make the content focused on that project. Because there's so many interesting things that you could build projects around with music or art or dance, and you could build a story out of learning and preparing that project. Are, are there any examples of creators that do that very well that you're aware of? I have a couple in mind, but I'm curious. I think one person that I really like is Elle Valera. And Elle she Valera. is learning how to sew clothes. So for the past few days, she's been sharing because she's she's a plus size model and she's extremely frustrated that not enough companies have her size. And she's like, I want to be able to wear these outfits. They don't have it for me. I'm going to make it myself. And so the past few days, she's been sharing things that she's been learning about sewing and in her stories. And so she's prefacing that to actual posts of what she's going to make. And she's like, I'm going to model it for you. I don't really care what it looks like. Here's the fabrics I bought. Like here's the scenes that I learned how to do. So she's making this, like this narrative out of just watching YouTube videos. It's awesome. Wow. Besides just like having the plan of the audience, but also kind of thinking it mm-hmm. in buckets, so to speak, because it allows you to yep. clarify like what it is. Um, and I think that's yeah. something I don't put almost any thought into, but like need to either. is again. And then alluding to drew, what you said, kind of combining these two ideas together in our new podcast gumbo. <laughs> or find our minestrone, our little, little, we can see the little elements of who said what. But uh, one of the things we know as creatives, composers, artists, we're all having to deal with these things um, is like, you know, either like necessity drives inventions or like limitations create limitless possibilities or just, you know, mm-hmm. define the box that's easier to play within the rules and then break it when you need to. And so like bringing just these artistic ideas, these artistic constructs, uh, over into our digital space and, and our marketing. Mm-hmm. Like it makes a ton of sense. And I, of course, like, yeah. you know, I threw that out the window, but to, to kind of silo things, you can, you can kind of brood the invention of like, this is behind the scenes. Like what really makes this behind the scenes for it? It's targeted for yeah. this person. It fits yep. into this box. This is the performance box. This is the practice box. This is the micro greens box. Um, literally, yep. but, um, Drew's like what rhymes with radish. Yeah, what rhymes with rad- like that's, it. it is. It's a whole series of you just fascist <laughs> looking up <laughs> fat and fascist, fascist. fascist. But, um, it, so another good example of just like the honesty, uh, comes to mind. Uh, my partner worked with Ashley Graham a lot and she's just like a premier mm-hmm. plus size model. And she's just like wonderful. She's probably, she's like the textbook of charisma and mm-hmm. but on her social channels and just in her real life she's just incredibly open and honest yeah and she's she's a model and coming in there she just recently broke one of her teeth i think she like bit a cookie or something I like that i think i saw that yeah it was like <laughs> it's it, like you look at the photo and it's just like you feel instant instant teeth pain because of just like how you yep. like that chisel away whatever teeth but like sharing that right there that experience yeah. and then also like raising the kids 
uh, or, or like mm-hmm. new new venture into motherhood and just like life, like the story, like you get these, but they're also like, I think about the copy, like you get a sense of her. It's not just the covers. It's yeah. behind the scenes. It's the funny life. It's, it's the charisma. And it really just yep. draws you in because it's like, ah, I know this person. I like their story. I want to see what they do. So it's, it is really neat to think it's for me just to slowly realize what is obvious. <laughs> just ask yourself why, yeah. which is all we do in any art and any study yeah. is like you learn more by asking why and like why not ask why in marketing. Dang. I think too, what these people are good at is not oversharing. And I don't mean oversharing and like sharing things too personal, but they're good at pacing. So they're not sharing everything on Monday and then they have nothing for a month. So they're very good at pacing their storytelling so that they're constantly able to engage with their audience. And Mm -hmm. especially now when it's hard to create new content, that's really important. And I like what you said, Courtney, first of all, about even in your thought experiment, what is the history of this? What was the sentiment? Mm-hmm. What was because I think the the storytellers I resonate most with are also educators. They also understand that context matters. Right. Dan Carlin is a great example of this with hardcore history and how he weaves stories about people that lived in a different world that we that, that we live in right now. And our biases, our perspectives are so different from theirs. And therefore, our actions in those those situations as people today would probably be different. So that's important part of the storytelling. I think that when we talk about music and when we talk about these composers, we often leave that part out. And so or it we leave the context out of of the storytelling. A creator who does it really well, among others, but head and shoulders it touches me is Nari Soul. She's a YouTuber. Mm. Have you heard of her? Mm-mm. You have to send me send me your our channel. Yeah. It, okay. Yeah, I will. It's uh for the listeners out there. It's Nari Soul. N A H R E S O L. You can find her on Instagram, YouTube, and what i i'm most inspired by her is like she isn't oversharing she doesn't overshare she creates story narratives based off of composers based off of music her perspectives as a composer and she talks about the historical context of music and how it develops and how uh you can learn to be a better musician yourself and she documents her journey on discovering other aspects of music. And that's something that I've always wanted to do, but never knew how to do it. So mm-hmm. as you you were talking about that, it made me think of her. And I recommend that you check her out because uh, well, I think she's a wonderful template of, of what you're speaking about. It's interesting thinking about these composers. You know, when you go to school, it's like they were perfect. They had this amazing life. They made this music. And it's not really true. Like they were actual people at, and that's something an, an outside of music audience would have no idea about. And so it's creating that content that can, that everyone can get something from. So you can build your audience outside of musicians. It's, so it's like old Instagram, I guess. Like we, we <laughs> venerate all of the greatest hits of Beethoven and Mendelssohn and Brahms, but we don't talk about like the fact they chipped their tooth or 
you know, or, <laughs> or, or, or the, the things that actually make them mortal and human, just like you and me, those stories get mm-hmm. lost to history as the legend grows, right? Like we barely know anything about Johann Sebastian Bach. Except he got a bunch of kids. So. Dude, dude was plowing the yes. ground, okay? Like he, he had a lot of crops. <laughs> sticks out to me as like such an important point one thing i always just as you're going through school of course it's oh that's the greats it's the genius but it's really Uh. detached from reality the further we get from history the more detached and kind of idolized these people get even in their own time when you're getting in you know brahms era the idolization of beethoven and not even j.s bach JC Bach. Yeah. Like they yeah. idolized the other Bach was part of the triangle. <laughs> like there are images in, in publications in newspapers of like a triangle, you know, Beethoven, JC Bach, Mozart. Like they hadn't even d- discovered, yeah. uh, you know, Papa Bach. What, what interests me in particular, and like we have the advantage of, is we can start to control our narrative, our story. Yes. Mm-hmm. They weren't sitting around writing their biography, particularly in that time. J.S. Bach didn't understand the significance of himself or what he was doing. He was too busy, you know, dealing with all those kids and trying to write and the nerding next, out at the orb. Yeah, trying to write the next piece for the Sunday <laughs> service. Like that's it. <clears throat> history has had such a particular influence. Like one thing, only until we get into later history, you know, like the effects of their surroundings, war. Mm-hmm. Bach, when you get those solo pieces, it's because friends were off at war. You can't write a huge cantata. When there's no one around, you know, is it they're not going to be singing when they're going off uh, to battle. Ravel, yeah. the um, impacts of war. Just so many of these artists, when, when we put it in the context of surroundings, we learn so much in their day-to-day lives. And I think there's been particular interest, you know, reading up on their letters. Turns out Beethoven yep. was an asshole like that. <laughs> <laughs> Mozart was weird. He liked to tell fart jokes with his sister. Mozart was obsessed with poop. Like there's yeah. an, their yeah. entire, he was a scatol, scatological <laughs> interest and it's true. Like he was like fascinated to a very weird degree <laughs> in the interest of bio. I, I'm going to remember that, but Debussy was an asshole. Like so many of these people, you really? find out who they are. It's kind of fascinating. Their weird little quirks. The biggest one that sticks out to me, there's a letter from Mozart to someone. And he was, he was basically complaining. He's like, I don't, I don't have, you know, enough time to write. I got to be teaching all day. I got to work. And then I have to like go to these like events and talk to people. Like I don't have enough time to write music mm-hmm. and like nothing is more relatable. That sounds like something you'd hear now. But nothing's more relatable yeah, than that. I got that. this podcast. Yeah, like, I got to like edit yeah. some videos. You know, I got this chick over here that's so, kind of acting crazy. Nothing <laughs> has changed. And then Mozart's yeah. like, I got to no. like, I don't know, write about poop to my sister. Um, ah! <laughs> Sky Salieri. Poop <laughs> Um, but it, see, he would do the memes. He would be on Twitter doing memes. And they did these. Like I know that there's like the yeah. No, it is it is Mozart. He has that uh like lick my arse or whatever. <laughs> or whatever. Like he's got the whole canon. Dude was funny. He was a weird, funny, yeah. funny guy who would just have killed on TikTok. Um, he would have killed it on TikTok. But we we you know he we've we've idolized him. He's a genius. Oh, he died so young in the story. Let's make a movie about it. And yet here we are. Like he's just another you know random person on the street who just happened to have made a lot of music yeah. that somehow stood the test of time thanks to some marketing. Yep. His story his story is why it's around. Beethoven thanks to some marketing. You know he can't hear. Suddenly very interesting. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. That might be the biggest thing to just in, in my uh, rant is that we think that it was just their music. They either great performers, it was just the performances or great, this false idea that they're, you know, they're, they're so genius that the reason we talk about them hundreds of years later is because, you know, it was so good and it transcends time and it's universal in space. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> they had everyone who was successful had supporters and someone who represented them and carried on their work. Yeah. Beethoven's family carried on this work for money. Or like Clara Schumann with her husband. Schumann, right there. Like all, mm-hmm. almost everyone you can point to like, well, why is, why is so-and-so more successful than Mendelssohn? Or why is so-and-so successful than Sibelius? Yeah. Geography, did they have a supporter? Like that's it. Did they have a conductor yeah. who liked them? Did they have someone money who liked their stuff and put it out there? Probably like a prince or court supporting their work. It was marketing. Haydn, Esterhazy. Yeah. yeah. Could they sell it? There are a lot of great works we're finding now, which are equal or comparable to you know, the Mozarts of their day. And it's just, if they yep. didn't have someone there to market them, they were lost. I, I don't know about you guys. Like, I always felt in school, the way that they explained things, it was like divine intervention. Like, these pieces <laughs> were like, placed in their heads. Like, it was such this... this amazing process and in reality it's like i have a few friends i need a piece tomorrow this is what i'm writing for it's like it's just it's way more human than what they lead us to and, believe and you know like these are like love letters to someone for at least like the little piece everyone right. plays it's just like she don't like me you know it was a beethoven was <laughs> you sliding into the dms like that's all it was i've been there i've been there yeah. uh b yeah. i've been there b but yeah. so many of those even the great work that's my favorite thing too is just realizing like um, like there's the, the, the contemporary, like, uh, victims to the, uh, uh, Hiroshima, the, that piece, mm-hmm. like Therinity under the victims of yeah. Hiroshima. It's in the textbooks or whatever. That piece was called like 837 or something, just like the time, the duration of the piece. And then he literally like slapped on a title yeah. and like, that's why it's in the history books. It, it might, it's probably not because of the piece. It's because it, like, it was an attached to something. Yep. It was marketing. So many yep. of those old pieces going back to, to the classical times of your, your Haydn's, they didn't name their symphonies. It was just a number. That was bad branding. So suddenly the publisher is like, oh, this is the surprise. This is the clock <laughs> symphony. It, it kind of does color how you hear it though. You know, if they said it's, it's the sad symphony or it's like the dangerous symphony, that would, those staccati would sound mm-hmm. very different than surprise. And so I think like the titling really, it colors how you hear that piece and it changes like what you might take away from it. I think it's incredibly important. And it's because that, I think with um, our good friend, John Hong came on about bios is that that's their, Ooh. that's often their first interaction with the piece. They haven't heard it yet, yep. but they've come in there and the title is is what's going to convey that information who knows if someone was listening to la mer if it would have sounded like the sea had someone not told them and so debussy for example was very (laughs) debussy was very conscious of this too so with his famous preludes debussy was very self-conscious of this and with his preludes they're the famous example the title is at the end of every of every prelude Mm. it's you know it'd be like clouds dot 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 Canopy, dot, dot, dot. And the idea was that he wanted people to hear it and experience and have their own images drawn up before like his title imposed what he was thinking about it or what, it's kind of like he just had to title it something. Right. But 
it's it's marketing. You got to be able to call it something. I mean, I'll admit I've had trouble at orchestral concerts before because it's like, here's the symphony, here's the adagio section. And, and I have trouble with that because as a singer, I have the text to really guide my mind through this piece and give me a subject Mm -hmm. and an action and then, you know, emotions. And so sometimes I do have trouble with orchestral music because I feel like there's no guide for what I'm listening to. And I don't know if that's good or bad to want that. I guess it just is what it is, but I feel like titling can help so much with your experience with the piece. Can we circle back on Old Town Road real quick? Yeah. Uh, horses in the horse in the back. Horses in titling. the back. You know, I think that the beauty of marketing, uh, and I think it's a wonderful bow we could put on this incredible conversation, is like marketing, effective marketing, teaches you as a person who consumes it how to explain it to somebody else who doesn't know what you're talking about. And if you can do that in a simple, short, concise, and sticky way, you, you really, that's all you really need. Everything else is just extra. Would you agree? Mm. Courtney, you're such a great teacher. (laughs) Oh my God. Let's, let's maybe we wrap this up with something full meta to make this sticky and concise. What should we title this episode? <laughs> oh, I already oh, wrote it down. Sorry. Let's hear it. What is it? Mozart would have been TikTok famous. <laughs> That's a good one. Or what rhymes with radish. What, what rhymes with radish? Dude, that would be audience engagement. That would be... So, uh, yeah, if you're listening, if you got to the end of a, end of this uh, podcast, I need you to... where I need you to DM Courtney. DM her on Twitter. <laughs> a word that rhymes with radish. Okay. There we go. Call to, a very useful call to action is we're slide to her DMs. We're crowdsourcing <laughs> our lyrics. DMs. I can't wait. Crowdsourcing <laughs> lyrics. It's the future. Let's go. Well, well, Courtney, where can people find you? Where do you want people to engage with you on the internet? I'm online as uh, CR Soprano on TikTok and uh, Twitter and Instagram, and I'm super happy to chat anytime. I post stories all the time and I love it. Um, I have a website, but it is a singer website. So I actually am in the beginning stages of redesigning it. So I don't know like what direction that will take, but that's CourtneyRuckman.com. Amazing. Courtney Ruckman. Thank you so much for coming. I adore you. I value our friendship and I just thank you for coming and sharing your wisdom and knowledge with our audience, the Faking Fam. Thank you both for having me. This was so much fun. I've never done a podcast before. So oh, we love First it. timer. <laughs> so now this is part of your story. So thanks. Thanks for coming on. And we're excited to see where else you'll take the music in this new sphere. And I don't know. I'm just I'm, I'm excited to, to see where this all leads. We'll definitely have you back on. Oh, thanks, back. guys, so much. You're welcome. Stay safe. Welcome to Lakota, everybody. Lakota, straight up. That was a great combo. Concise. It's got the whole story. I mean, that's what we talked about. It's all therapy. But there's also, <laughs> yeah, it's more therapy, but there's also all those little like technical gems um, that I think will be really useful. And it's nice too, like a lot of the guests we've had on here, almost everyone has been very specific to something we're thinking about with our lives whether it's mm. marketing websites, starting companies, uh, writing bios, writing bios. <laughs> it's like maybe the, maybe that's our thing. It's just like, man, I like my back's kind of sore. Can we bring on a doctor? 
<laughs> yeah, can we get a chiropractor on next time? You know, <laughs> and it's just free. It's a free consultation. Just, free. just come it's on just the like, fake Hypothetically, enough. you know, say this person, you know, looks a lot like me. It's named Trevor. Mm-hmm. What would you do mm-hmm. to this client? How badly would you massage his lower back and with yeah. what implements? Yeah, yeah. Specifically, <laughs> like, do I do the thumb on, like, on the spine to the right of the spine? Like, walk me through this process. It's very useful for our um, <clears throat> listeners. Wait, uh, hold on. <laughs> Don't, wait, actually, hold on. Hey, honey, can you come in here? Um, this man's going to tell you how to do it right. <laughs> like, have, this, have this guy look at that spot on your back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We've, got, we've got a dermatologist here on the pod. Uh, Is this cancerous? <laughs> But yeah, I mean, Courtney, she's awesome. The true testament of my relationship with Courtney is, is really being open to people. You know, when people mm-hmm. cross your path um, and you don't know if, if you're putting out your content, you don't know who you're affecting. You don't know who you're touching. You don't know who is resonating with you and they will pop up and, at the most unexpected moments. And on any given day, And that was my philosophy living in New York. I was like, my time is not for me. My time is for my business and my brand. I'm, I'm 24 seven all in. And so when people would reach out and say, Hey, would you grab coffee? I said yes to 99% of everybody who reached out because you don't know who will change your life. You don't know who will teach you something that would change your perspective on life in general. Courtney was one of those people. You were one of those people, bro. And so I just love how just having an open mind and seeing every person as somebody to teach you something new and being open to new relationships, opposite of the Drake, no new friends philosophy. I think that beautiful (laughs) things can happen in this podcast is a manifestation of that. Yeah. Cause I don't know the, the Drake philosophy. Um, I just know the Drake memes, but <laughs> if you cry three times in front of a mirror, Drake will appear and cry with you. Yeah. <laughs> but, I've, I've tried that one many a time. It doesn't I work. I think with the, yeah, like the Drake thing too, it's, I, of course I, again, no context, no new people, no new bystanders, but not no new friends. It's like the people you do, you'd go and like have that. If you're having that mindset to avoid things, it's like those weren't, those weren't going to be friends. Like you weren't treating people mm-hmm. as friends. And so I just mm-hmm. agree with you. Everyone who's ever reached out, I try to talk to, I try to do phone calls, particularly if they're asking about school or music or something specific. Um, I make sure to talk to them because I remember me. I didn't do that often, but the few times I did, I got responses. I sent off a piece, you know, to some saxophone quartet in like the Netherlands because they had awesome YouTube videos. <laughs> and they gave me like good feedback. They're like, oh yeah, like this sounds very American slam you know like, yes. <laughs> it's like damn but, it <laughs> it's like oh god but like they had some like great comics another like really well-known composer at the time winning all these awards who was younger but just really big in the scene i emailed him and he sent me back he's like here's the 10 things that are important to me and like i think you should think about it. like you know took time to feedback and and i remember those did i internalize all of them no i still have that note i still have that message written down i saved it uh and it's because people it's always, you know, sending down the ladder is good for you. It's good for them. It's good for the world and the community. It's how you foster relationships and everything we do, every success, really positive element in my life has been because of a relationship with someone. It's been because someone gave their time uh, to me, gave advice, whatever it is, just heard me out. That's every job, every success has come through one of those. 
you know, Kevin Kelly's uh, 68 pieces of uh, unsolicited advice that we talked about. Yeah, with, I remember we Paul. talked about. There was one point where it was like, and I don't know if we talked in the podcast about it, but it was like having a friend with a boat is better than owning a boat. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because you don't have to, you don't have to like do all the maintenance and you can still every once in a while enjoy the benefits of having a boat. That's hilarious. And it's brilliant and it's so fucking wise because that's so true. And I, I realized, I, I think that we all inspire each other. I was just thinking about Albert Chang this morning um, and how he fundamentally, like the reason why I have this video set up is because you're he looking came dope. by Bro, you can see these pores. You see these pores, boy. We'll get it on Blu-ray. Fake notes podcast on Blu-ray. <laughs> it's for it, it, kids. Blu-ray was something you used to use before. Blu-ray Netflix was something that out. never caught on. It's just no. really nice DVD. Really nice DVD, but now with your 5G connection, you can get even higher quality 4K footage streamed directly from the internet. That being said, it, it's just so funny that my relationship with Albert has directly affected the way I storytell, the way I, I vlog, the way I view storytelling and content creation. He took my stuff to another level, just being around him. And now like he taught me how to once again, step my game up, step the quality up for the storytelling purpose. And, and I think that when we surround ourselves with people that embody characteristics that we admire positive things that we admire mm -hmm. it, it's it's only to your benefit and then you get inspired to be that for other people so then you just implicitly start building this community of doers and people who are loving to each other and and support each other i just dude and i see this podcast becoming that sam walder said like the gateways to the music community I don't know about all that. Yeah. <laughs> we, out but we out here trying to do some positive stuff. So if you, if you, if you felt something during this podcast, if you felt it was valuable, please leave us a rating. Tell a friend about it. Subscribe. Uh, five subs subscribe. Um, Cause we love doing this content and we actually have a faking fan feature. One of y'all coming through very soon. So tune into that next week on the Faking Notes Podcast. Thanks again, everyone.